Welcome to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Michael Goldfield, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and currently Research Fellow at the Fraser Center for Workplace Issues at Wayne State University. We're discussing his book, The Southern Key, Race, Class, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s, published by Oxford University Press. Michael Goldfield, welcome to Working History. Glad to be here. Thanks. We're glad to have you. Your book engages with a subject area, which is labor unions and successes and failures of organized labor in the South, that has attracted a lot of scholarly attention and constitutes a a large body of scholarship. So given this, what was your motivation for writing Southern Key? And where do you see it engaging with and really making a new contribution to this body of work? Well, first of all, I think that the South has been central to the history of the country from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, And even in the present, it it explains a lot of uh, Trump's coalition and how Trump is so successful, particularly his strongest basis of support in places in the South. I take issue that, as you say, there's a huge amount of scholarship Mm -hmm. and your work, particularly in The Common Thread, is one of the few pieces of work that doesn't rely on cultural issues to explain what was going on in the South. So so I argue that the economic structure of industry, and this is most apparent in textile, um, is key to understanding what happens and the success and failures of workers' movements, and as well as leadership not understanding that. Mm -hmm. So in textile, for example, I look at the textile industry in eight or 10 other countries, Mm -hmm. and the struggles are all fairly similar, Mm -hmm. and the cultures are all very different. So Mm -hmm. I think that the people who focus on culture have been too myopic and have not looked at the economic issues uh, involved in textile. Okay, so that's that's really interesting. So, you know, people uh, or, or books, for instance, like Like a Family, right, which was really very central to my understanding of the textile industry, which is very heavily focused on mill culture, for instance. Is that the kind of work that you're talking about that you are in some ways trying to offset with a more economic focus? Right. And I've also become um, less sanguine about oral history, mm-hmm. which Like a Family is based on. Mm-hmm. So... It turns out, for example, that in Like a History, they say that the 1934 strike deflated interest and in, uh, textile worker militancy. Mm-hmm. But as you also point out, and Alabama is really key to understanding a lot of these issues. It turns out that the textile workers organizing campaign of 1937 there was a huge amount of militancy and interest in the union, mm-hmm. uh, irrespective of the 1934 strike. Mm-hmm. So I think people's rec- recollections of what happened 20, 30 years ago are not what one should rely on for the facts when there's clear documentary, archival, contemporary evidence about what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So could you walk us through some of the industries that you focus on in the book? You're, you're talking about textiles, but you engage with others as well. And tell us what they were, you know, what, what are these industries and what were the key issues around which you found unions trying to organize? 
I, I look at four four industries, although I probably talk about a dozen uh, peripherally. Mm-hmm. So I look at coal, steel, which were two industries where unions were successful in the South. Mm-hmm. And then I look at textile and woodworking. Mm-hmm. And the key thing, coal, coal miners had more what I call structural power than mm-hmm. virtually any other industry. Mm-hmm. Um, when coal miners stopped work, you can't move the coal mines like mm-hmm. you can textile mills. Mm-hmm. They're there where the coal is. And it's very difficult to replace coal miners, particularly if no coal miners from other parts of the country are willing to come in and scab and be strike breakers. Mm-hmm. So coal, coal miners had a lot of leverage. That didn't mean it was easy to organize because there was a lot of repression, actually mm-hmm. more repression in coal than in textile. Textile, on the other hand, is a very mobile industry, low capital investments, low skill level. It's easy to train textile workers for most of the jobs. Mm -hmm. So they had very little leverage. And workers in those type of industries needed many more allies and what I call associational power. Mm -hmm. And in Alabama, which you focus on in your work and Note that they were central to the 1934 strike, and they were also one of the the, the only area in the South where unions weren't completely destroyed mm-hmm. after the 1934 strike. And the main reason for that is that the, that the labor movement in Alabama was stronger than any place else in the South, mm-hmm. led by coal miners, steel workers, metal mine workers, and a host of other workers around the state, which also is a reason why the governor didn't call the National Guard in Alabama as governors did in other southern textile states. Mm -hmm. So that additional degree of support in Alabama was really critical to the success that textile unions had. And they lost some of that support when the mine workers split from the industrial union movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So each of the, each of these industries has different different situation, and also some of them had very bad leadership. Textile is notorious for having bad national leadership, and mm-hmm. you point that out in your book in the Common Thread. Um, but it was even worse among woodworkers, who were f- much more easy to organize than textile workers were. But the union was fairly incompetent and pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about the Woodworkers Union? That seems to me um, an industry that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention. Um, I think coal, I think textiles, to a certain extent, steel, you know, appears pretty frequently in, in literature about Southern labor. But where do woodworkers fit in with that? That seems like, a you know, what was that industry like? Was it mixed race? Was it not? Does that matter? What, you know, what were the sort of economics around it? Right. So, so the woodworking industry was one of the biggest in the con- country. It mm-hmm. involves two basic components. Logging mm-hmm. is one and sawmills are the other. Mm-hmm. And the South had the largest number of woodworkers and, and, and numbers vary by year. So I, I know all the census figures, but basically they had between 300 and 350,000 workers and about, in the South and about 250,000 in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. These were the two main places of the industry. In the South, the Racial composition was f- roughly 50% African-American, with some of the states in the Deep South having more than 50% African-American. Mm-hmm. And 
woodworkers were very easy to organize. They had a lot of leverage. The sawmills tended to be near, particularly in the south, near where the trees were cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they weren't easily moved. The workers were fairly militant. And this was true in Alabama. The coal miners and other unions organized woodworkers and handed them over to the woodworkers union who didn't service them and banded them and the locals fell apart. Mm. So the leadership of the woodworkers union, which was originally organized by left wingers who wanted to organize the South, the national CIO industrial union movement leaders put in a right wing leadership to combat the communists. And this Mm -hmm. was early. This was in the late 30s. And this leadership never got around to doing much in the South. In fact, they were criticized by their more conservative allies in the South as not doing anything. Mm -hmm. So continually during the 1930s and 1940s, woodworkers struck. They voted to unionize even after World War II during Operation Dixie. They were successful, and then they were abandoned by the national leadership. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They, they had great potential. And I argue that if these 300,000 workers had been organized in the South, they would have been not only strengthened the whole union movement, but it would have been a boon to the civil rights movement later. Sure, sure. So do you see the success of unions, especially in the South in this era, being hinged on the ability of the national leadership to effectively capitalize on grassroots militancy, which it seems was common pretty much throughout the industries in the region. Is that fair to say? Right. And and so I think the people who talk about culture uh, act like the, the workers themselves didn't have militancy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. weren't ready to organize. But as you know, from looking at the textile industry, these workers in the South were as militant as the ones in the North. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in s- certain industries, national leaders didn't capitalize on it. So you talk about what happened leading up to the 1934 strike, um, how the le- leadership of the American Federation of Labor, particularly William Green, didn't want strikes and went around thinking he could convince employers to accept the unions, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, the more conservative AFL unions um, to keep out the communists, where, of course, they were completely unsuccessful in terms of sweet talking the unions. Mm -hmm. And the same is true. So so I spent a lot of time in my book talking about the 1937 campaign Mm -hmm. led by Sidney Hillman, who Mm -hmm. was the... um, head of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union. Mm -hmm. And Hillman had basically the same strategy that the AFL had had, which was sweet-talking the employers. Mm -hmm. So they try to keep workers from striking. They they didn't see the militancy as a plus. And, of course, they lost out completely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, leadership made, made a big difference in textile and in woodworking. In contrast... The coal miners were very solidaristic and militant. Mm-hmm. But even but even in steel, Lewis and Philip Murray, who, became, who was his assistant, who vice president of the coal miners union, who became uh, president of the steel workers union, 
knew that in order to mobilize the workforce that they needed a lot of additional help. Mm-hmm. So they recruited and made alliances with communist organizers. Most of the black organizers were recruited from uh, people in the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And this was particularly true in in Alabama, where they relied almost completely. Um, and, and they had alliances in steel with all sorts of other organizations. They had strong support from civil rights organizations. They had, um, particularly in the North, there were ethnic and immigrant organizations that were represented lots of steel workers who they who they uh, appealed to and got support from. So this idea of having associative power and alliances, uh, and there's also one industry that I only talk about a little bit that was important in the couple states in the South, that's the oil industry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was central in terms of Louisiana and Texas, which are two states where it's still central today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in that industry, they they, um, had alliances with people from the Maritime Union who loaded and unloaded oil tankers Mm -hmm. from ports. And in one major congressional district where, where the Port Arthur facility, uh, it was an ESSO oil facility, had 10,000 workers. When they organized that, they drove out the most right-wing congressman in in the South, Martin Dyes, who was mm-hmm. the head of the Dyes Committee, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, anti-subversive committee, and elected a fairly liberal pro-civil rights congressperson. So th- they actually mobilized so strongly that he refused to run for election. Dyes did and they elected someone. And this was not a particularly radical union. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a mainstream union. So th- the idea is that if there had been more unionization in the South, not only would workers' rights have been stronger, but civil rights would have been a more important and supported issue by white as well as black workers. Right. Can you fast forward us a little bit uh, to Operation Dixie um, and and tell our listeners just a, you know, a little bit about it, kind of in broad brushstrokes, what it was and what its goals were. And then within the context of your research and your book, talk about any particular successes you see it as having had and maybe more importantly to the, the narrative that you've crafted is why in the big picture did it fail and what were the repercussions of that? Okay, well... Um, I've written a lot about Operation Dixie in the past before this book. Mm -hmm. And like almost everyone else, I saw it as a major campaign to organize the South. But as I did the research, particularly on these other industries, it became clear to me that it was not so important. Mm -hmm. In some Mm -hmm. sense, it's a coda. Mm -hmm. And one indication of that is that both the Steelworkers Organizing Committee and the uh, of 1936, 1937, and the Textile Workers Organizing Committee a little bit later of 1937 had many times the amount of resources and organizers just for a single industry. Mm-hmm. So Operation Dixie did not have that many resources. Also, they focused on textile, which was probably a mistake. They probably should have focused on the woodworking industry to start mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, they didn't realize that they had to have a lot of allies. Mm-hmm. So they not only didn't have any left-wing unions or leftists involved in their organizing, they refused to have alliances with anybody. Mm. And this was an industry in which 
there was limited structural power and leverage, I don't believe it was a serious attempt to organize. So, for example, I mean, one thing you highlight in your work is the role of women. Mm -hmm. Textile workers is an industry that's, you know, depending on state and area, as much as 50 percent female. Mm -hmm. They hired no female organizers. Mm -hmm. I've gone through, you know, and I might be wrong on one or two names because some names could be either gender, right? Mm -hmm. But, sure. you know, in, in, in North Carolina, South Carolina, where they have 50 or 60 organizers, there's hardly a female on the whole, on the whole list. Mm -hmm. So rather than being serious about organizing, again, like the Gompers Green Hillman strategy, they went for making things look good. So they hired mostly inexperienced organizers, white male veterans hmm. who were from the South. This they thought would undermine the attacks on them for being communist and being unpatriotic and all that stuff. But it mm -hmm. didn't do that at mm -hmm. all. They were mm -hmm. still accused of all these things. But the, the organizing staff was incompetent and inexperienced and what wasn't particularly representative of the constituency they were trying to organize. Particularly in industry, I mean, one thing I've discovered in looking at the textile and other industries carefully is that women were clearly the, among the most militant and taking leadership roles in many places in the South. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you came across the same thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, in your work looking at looking at Alabama, you know, partic particularly Gadsden which was a union city, which became a union city where, mm -hmm. where steel and rubber and textile were all fully organized. So Operation Dixie started off with a few major successes. They, they organized uh, most of the Oak Ridge facility. That's where the atomic bomb and nuclear, nuclear weapons were manufactured. It mm -hmm. had 40 to 50,000 employees. They were successful at organizing the majority of workers there right when Operation Dixie started, and they had some other successes too. But in textile, they failed abysmally while claiming that they were having great successes. Mm -hmm. And they failed so badly that they didn't even bring any major plants to uh, National Labor Relations Board certification elections because they had so pe few people sign up. Mm -hmm. They were also very racially backward, mm -hmm. and they lost a couple plants that did have a significant percentage of black workers because the black workers wouldn't vote for them, which is almost unheard of during the 1930s and 1940s in an industrial um, setting where black workers were among the most enthusiastic supporters of the union, mm -hmm. which is certainly true in coal and steel and longshore and maritime and a host of other industries. Mm -hmm. Do you think, a bit of an ahistorical question, but do you think Southern workers in the 30s and 40s could effectively have been organized, part one of that question? And then part two, what really would have needed to have been different from your telling for unions to, to have succeeded in the region? In one state, they were fairly successful. Mm -hmm. And and so I label this in my book, Al Alabama Exceptionalism. Mm. So in 1947, 25% of the Alabama workforce, 220, 230,000 workers were organized. That's a higher percentage 
than any state in the United States has today, mm-hmm. higher than mm-hmm. Michigan, higher than California, Hawaii, you know, among the most unionized states. And so they were successful because the coal miners had a wall-to-wall strategy in the main counties where they existed. Mm -hmm. They organized everybody else. And if textile workers and woodworkers had been organized, we're talking about another almost 100,000 workers in the state, particularly if you count supporting type of industries for textile and wood, Mm -hmm. you might have had 40%. So they would have been like Michigan or some of the other states that were very, very strong labor um, you know, in Michigan, up until recently, even the Republicans were pro pro union because mm-hmm. they, they couldn't afford not to be in the mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. I think that with different strategies or different le- and different leadership in textile and wood, workers could have been organized. That there was no real reason, and it certainly wasn't um, due to lack of desire or militancy on the part of Southern workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interestingly, so you look at steel, I mean, people talk about repression, but after World War II, there was very little physical repression in the South mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. union organized the way there had been in the, th- particularly in the thirties. Mm-hmm. But in Pennsylvania actually had more violence against union people than any of the places in the South during the 1930s. And steel workers, uh, many of these towns had nobody who voted democratic you look at the election in 1935, 1936, before the union organized, and they successfully beat back that repression. And I think that that could have been done in the South as well, mm-hmm. and, and was done in certain places. So in many of these industries, workers voted overwhelmingly for unions. Mm-hmm. That, that was true in steel, wood, packing house, major industries in the South. So I think that there were possibilities that were lost that could have been different. Mm -hmm. You opened up our conversation today by mentioning how you see the South and the story of um, union organizing in the South in many ways as central to understanding both American history and then also contemporary politics. So before we wrap up, could you Talk a little bit about what you see are the big takeaways from your book for understanding where we are today and for understanding today's political and economic climate. Right. So so I have a previous book, The Color of Politics, mm-hmm. which looks at race in the South, you know, from colonial times to the present and the degree to which the South and white supremacy controlled the history of the country. Mm-hmm. But the the, the 1930s and 1940s is important because the forces that controlled the South could have been at least partially defeated by the, la- by the labor movement. And they were defeated in certain small places during this time. And, and you can see this in certain really small places, not just in Alabama, but in Louisville. And Tony Gilpin has a forthcoming book on International Harvester where this was an overwhelmingly white local that engaged in civil rights activities. And you have a large plant like that where the company's not going to fire everybody, where it's mm-hmm. very difficult to repress those white and black workers engaging in that activity as it was in most of the South. So, so whites who supported civil rights during the late 50s and early 60s were isolated, repressed, um, 
even if they didn't face the violence that many blacks did, they lost their jobs, they lost their mortgages, their businesses, mm -hmm. and whatnot. So the existence of the racist South and its failure to be broken and the strength of white backlash in the South during the 1950s and 1960s is at least in part a result of the failure of labor unions. Mm -hmm. And so the South has remained a racially backward place. I mean, it could change as the demographics change in the South. And it remains today the place where health insurance coverage is the lowest, where uh, executions and death penalties are overwhelmingly concentrated. And it's also the place where people's, where, where racist attitudes of whites are much more extreme than in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. So if you look at issues like, well, was Obama not born in the United States, even though you can go on the web and see his birth certificate from Hawaii, you know, on the East and West Coast, there's a few percentage of whites that believe that. In Michigan, it's probably 10%, but there are states in the South where the majority of whites believe that. Mm -hmm. This is a racist trope. And so if you go through all these type of things, the racism among whites in the South, and in part, this exists because there's no organized alternative, which mm -hmm. unions, interracial unions often present. So, and W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the great social scientists, among other things, of the 20th century, said that the question isn't why no socialism in the United States, it's really why there's no liberalism in the South. Mm -hmm. And the explanation for that, uh, at least in the current period, has to do with the weakness of labor unions and the failure of labor unions in the 1930s when they had the best chance to extend themselves throughout the whole region. So, so, that, so that's what brings uh, a contemporary focus on to my looking at the 1930s and mm -hmm. 1940s. Well, your book gives us uh, quite a lot to think about, and um, I appreciate you taking the time to come and discuss it with us on this episode of Working History. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be there, and the, the book should be out in a couple weeks. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Michael Goldfield for joining us to discuss his book, The Southern Key. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member of SLSA online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Working History.